Hi. So the other day I decided to go uh, on a walk because when I'm giving a sermon, um, for some reason every single thing I do may or may not have a spiritual significance. So let's say I were to go into this church and I was like, I got to preach on something. Oh, man, look at those beautiful lights. God, do you want me to talk about those lights in my sermon? Or let's say I'm working on a sermon and I get a paper cut. I'm like, man, that must have some kind of deep spiritual significance, right? Because it wouldn't happen unless I could put it in a sermon. It would be fascinating for all of you. Um, But nothing was coming to me, nothing. So I got my little dog and decided to go for a walk. I live in Lakewood now. And I get my little dog and we're going for a walk. She's about eight pounds, not too big. And we're walking along and it's beautiful, but it's very snowy and icy. So it's cold and I'm bundled up. And it's icy, so I'm walking carefully. And up ahead, I see a loose dog. You know the kind of loose dog that is kind of gazelle-like, like prancing, like, I'm free, I'm free, I'm spazzing out, that kind of loose dog? It was a skinny German Shepherd mix. It's spazzing out like it's never been free. Looks about maybe one or two years old. And I'm starting to get kind of annoyed because I don't like loose dogs. No offense, people, I love dogs. But when they're loose, they become my enemy. And my heart's starting to beat, and I'm thinking, all right, it's about half a block away, and I'm thinking, is it nice? Is it going to be mean on my dog? My dog's not yet spayed. Is it going to freak out? Is it going to get mean on me? I've had a lot of bad experiences with dogs. Like I have Nikes with the word Nike scratched out to prove it, actually, from junior high school. Um, So I'm getting kind of annoyed. Then I walk a little closer, and I see there's a really old woman that's walking behind the dog. And not like about four houses behind. And she's shuffling, like barely walking, right? And it's cold and it's icy. Then I'm really annoyed because I'm thinking, lady, God bless you. I'm happy you're walking your dog, but please use a leash. One, because your dog is spazzing out and it's going to come bother my dog. Two, because you're the kind of person that when I'm driving, your dog will dart in front of me and freak me out. And I don't like when people don't use leashes. So I'm starting to brace myself for you know, the dog and the situation we're going to have, right? And as I get close to the lady, she yells at me, can you help me? And the whole story kind of changes. And of course, you have that one split second where you're like, am I going to really be a Christian or a jerk? (laughs) And me and God kind of have a deal, like a vigilante kind of deal that is like, at any point I say, yes, it's all right. It's a life of wonderful convenience, inconvenience, wonderful life. Um, So, of course, yeah, it's a no-brainer. Any one of us would be like, yeah, old lady, crazy dog, what are you going to do? Nothing else to do. Yes, we're going to help her. It took about a half an hour to get this dog because every time I started to get kind of close, he'd spaz out and go into someone else's yard and then spaz out and spaz out and always stayed about a block ahead of me. Far, right? And he's he's getting close to Alameda here, so I'm getting nervous. But eventually I give, and I have my little dog, so I'm doing this kind of thing. Finally, I give my little dog the leash to the old woman, and I'm like, just take care of my little dog, right? I'll get yours eventually. Finally, we trap him in someone else's yard, and she stays in one area, and I go and get him finally, right? And then getting him back to uh, her yard. And I ask her, I don't know why I asked this, probably none of my business, but I was like, do you keep your dog inside most of the time or on a leash? Like I'm thinking, maybe a friendly way to suggest it. And she looked really sad, and she goes, Honestly, I hate this stupid dog. It's my daughter's dog, and my daughter can't have it, and I'm always chasing after it. Then I felt so bummed for this lady, and I got the dog to her house, and um, essentially I was contemplating on that walk 
how to give a story from my life that would show desperation. And the perfect picture literally stumbled right in front of me, which is a really old woman in the ice and in the cold chasing after a young, very excited German Shepherd dog. If that doesn't explain desperate, I don't know what does. So there you have it, my Webster's Dictionary rendition of what desperate means. Um, today we're continuing on the sermon series entitled Christmas at Grandma's House. And it's really awesome to go to a church that is supportive and encourages us to do something different. We're not just talking about the story of Joseph and Mary and the angels, although we have. So if you're interested in those, you can go look on the podcast. But instead, we're looking at the five women that are listed in the beginning of Matthew to start the genealogy of Jesus's life. There are five women that are mentioned, and they all have scandalous stories. Most of them are foreign women with crazy backgrounds. And why are they in there? Well, that's what we're looking at, right? Why would, if Jesus is God, and if God has the ability to decide who he will descend from, could he not have chosen the most moral, the most Israelite, the most purebred, upstanding, staunch Israelite women? But he didn't, right? So we're looking at that. Last week, uh, Christy shared with us a story of one of the family tree that was uncovered questionable fruit, which was Rahab, who had been a prostitute and then eventually married into the Israelite family and was one of the uh, family members of Jesus. But this story with Ruth is a little bit different than Rahab. Ruth is not necessarily a bad fruit from tree because of her actions. Circumstance has screwed with her life. And so we're going to look at the story of Ruth. But before we begin, would you please pray with me? Father, I pray that if anything's not in my notes and you want to say it, you go for it. And if there's something in there you want to take out, you go for it. I pray, Lord, that you reach everyone where they are. Amen. Okay. So I'm going to be reading from the New International Version, the book of Ruth, chapter 1. And uh, we're going to start right in in the beginning. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elmelech, his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrites, Ephrites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. So, you see, they probably have money. They live in Bethlehem. It's a wife, two sons, typical family, awesome family. What a blessed woman. She has two sons. Um, but things are bad in Bethlehem. So the reason they choose to leave is because there's a famine. So that's why they decide to go somewhere else. Now, Emelik, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. So you get this woman who was an Israelite woman, probably came from a nice family, had her husband and her two sons, which seems like every Israelite woman is vying to have sons, and she has two. And they marry foreign women, but they're married, right? They're on their way to becoming a big family. She's probably stoked to become a grandma. That's the next thing that's going to happen. She's set in her life. She's got her husband, her sons, boom, her husband dies. That is really sad. That's a bummer. But then, boom, her sons die. Now we're in trouble for Naomi because she's here in a foreign land. She has two daughter-in-laws, 
And women back then do not own things. They do not work. They are not cared for in the way our society cares for women. And especially where she is, there's no one to take care of her because she's in a foreign land. She probably felt very desperate at that time. She's probably, I don't know, bummed, maybe even bummed at her God saying, you know, why have you left me like this? I've done my best. I've been an awesome woman. Now I have no husband. Now I have no sons. I've got these two daughter-in-laws. Um, but she gets an idea in her mind, and her imagination starts to go. And she decides, I'll go back. I've heard that the famine is over in Bethlehem. I'll go back. So she doesn't just give up. She doesn't just decide to be a widow in this foreign land and just waste away, and everyone just calls her the old cat lady there and dies, right? No. Even though she's old, no husband, no sons, she's going to move ahead and return back to Bethlehem. So now she's going to tell her daughter-in-laws. Verse 8. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness if you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. So she likes her daughter-in-laws. They have a good relationship. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept out loud and said to her, We'll go back with you to your people. Oh, is that even an option? I didn't hear her invite them. Oh, I don't know. But anyway, so they're crying, and they really like their mother-in-law. She's been awesome to them. This is not everybody loves Raymond somehow. This is a different picture. Um, but Naomi says, again, second time, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. And even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. So she is bummed. She's bummed about her life, but she's hopeful. At this time, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. So Orpah's like, hmm, marry someone else? I'm out of here. There she goes. She's back. She's going home. But Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi. This is her third time, right? Your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. I don't know if you know any women in your family that um, like to be martyrs, but Naomi's not that kind of woman. She's not the little old me, feel sorry for little old me. She's like, I'm an old woman, but I'm going by myself. I'm going by myself to Bethlehem. You don't need to come with me. I'm fine. Please, you're young. Go get your own family. Go back. Don't end up like me. Maybe she's worried. If you come with me, they're going to spot right away you're a foreigner. No guy's going to want you. No offense. I don't want to say that. Maybe she doesn't want to say that, but she's looking at her daughter-in-law like, um, you're a little different. You talk a little different. You look and smell a little different. Go find a husband that's going to get you. You've got your own family. You've got your own gods. You've got your own customs. If you come with me, you might just be a poor widow like me. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. 
when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. I love this picture of a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law. They must be very special women, women of great character. I don't know how well Naomi and the whole family loved her, but something about the way she loved her also impressed her to her God. Because Naomi says that, your God will be my God. She is also like the other women we've been learning about. Something about the Israelites ignites hope and a future to these women. And it must be a super awkward thing to share a relationship based on a man you both loved, your son and your husband. But either way, we see that Ruth is showing deep love to Naomi, not just because of who her husband was, but because she's grown to love this woman. She doesn't want to leave her alone. So they're going to go back to Bethlehem now. Uh, This picture doesn't inspire Orpah, by the way. She has a vision and a picture and her imagination, and she decides to go back. Um, But instead, Ruth is going to go forward. So here they go, and let's see what happens. This is chapter 2, verse 2. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Almanac, whose name was Boaz. So they get back to Bethlehem, and who are they going to meet up with? They're going to look for Naomi's passed away husband's family. Here comes Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Essentially, they don't have jobs, they don't have money, but there was a law that said to the farmers, when your field is done being picked, leave some of it behind for the poor people. Isn't that a cool way to do it? Don't pick it all, leave it so that poor people can go pick and eat. It's like living very paycheck to paycheck, though, because Ruth and Naomi aren't going to know from day to day what there's going to be. It's a hunch, it's a hope, but this is the only way they can do it. And Ruth says, I'll do it because you're old, and I love you. So here she's going to go. And Naomi says to her, go ahead, my daughter. And so she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. Isn't that interesting? They're harvesting, but they're leaving, and she's right behind them picking what's left. As it turns out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elmelech, her former father-in-law. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. So here we have the older farm owner. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Must be a good boss. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves from behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz He's going to talk to Ruth now. He says to Ruth, my daughter, first indication that he does not see her as a foreigner. My daughter, listen to me. Do not go and glean in another field. And don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. You see what he's setting up for her? Safety and appropriateness. Stay by my women and stay here. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? I would think that a foreigner would stand out. That's probably why he noticed her. Um, But Boaz replies, and I love this. It's based on character. He doesn't say you're super 
awesome babe, babe city. He says, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and how your home and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord. Spark, spark, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. So they both like each other. They both respect each other. They respect each other's character. At mealtime, Boaz says to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. And I love this. I love this. Let her gather among the sheaves, but don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up. And don't rebuke her. So basically, he's like setting her up for, you know, do the work for this girl. I like her. I care about her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an epaph. She carried it back into town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Obviously, the mother-in-law is noticing, This is a lot of food. You're getting some favors. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all the grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So now they have a new picture to put their hope in. Here they've traveled, they have no one to put their hope in, nothing to put their hope in, and suddenly something comes to light. This concept of the guardian redeemer. Um, The guardian redeemer is sometimes also called the kinsman redeemer. Essentially, it's set up in the book of Leviticus. Genesis talks about it, Exodus. It literally means one who delivers or rescues or redeems a person. Essentially, there was provision for the wives that were widows or other people that were downtrodden, And it was the person that could help them. They were called to help them. Um, But there was a very, very, very legal way they had to do it. There was one person that you'd go to that was the next of kin, and then the next, and then the next, all the way down. That way you were, you know, provided for, provided you stay in Bethlehem. So we're going on in chapter 3. One day Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you while you will be well provided for. So we don't know how long she's been gleaning, but essentially, like I said, gleaning is paycheck to paycheck, hard, hard, hard work. And Naomi's getting old and thinking, well, when I die, what's going to happen to Ruth? She's awesome. Got to get her married, right? She doesn't know our customs. I'm the one who's got to help her here. So let's see what Ruth has in mind. Now, Boaz, with whose women you have worked as a relative of ours, here's the plan. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. 
Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he's lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. Oh, no. 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 Mm -mm. That's where the story would end if it was me. (laughs) No. But Ruth says, I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking, and we're talking fermented drinks, eating and fermented drinking, he was in good spirits. He went to lie down. A lie down after some fermented spirits will give you a heavy sleep, I would imagine. So he goes to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly and covered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. So not right away. He's out. He's out cold. His feet are exposed, guys. But suddenly he wakes up, right? And he sees there's a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asks. It's probably pitch dark. I'm your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. Yes, he's thinking, yes. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now my daughter, that's also very respectful. It's not inappropriate to say my daughter here. Don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it's true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, bum deal, guys, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So Boaz wants to do whatever it is that Naomi or that Ruth is asking. But guys, what is she asking? So, okay, their cultures are different than ours. If two people are on a date and they're walking in the park and all of a sudden the guy gets down on his knee and his hand goes up like this, what is happening? Culturally, what do we think is happening? Right, he's proposing. Maybe in that culture that would have looked weird. Maybe that was like the culture for I'm going to war with you or something, selling you a pig. But the spreading of the garment he would have got, the spreading of the garment signified proposal. Ruth is asking Boaz to marry her. She's asking, and he gets it, and he doesn't do anything appropriate with this. He says, there's a way we got to do it. I got to go ask the guy first in line, but if he says no, okay, okay. And he's also very touched by this. Um, So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized, and he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. And when she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back into town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how'd it go, my daughter? (laughs) Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Oh, that's awesome. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. So, yeah, it looks a little like a strange story. Um, Commentators wonder, you know, what did happen on the threshing floor? 
But you know what? It looks like nothing happened. It looks like it's appropriate. It's a person of noble character approaching a person of noble character to move on in their noble characteredness. That's the point of this. But yes, the intention is clear. Boaz is old. He wants to have a baby. Ruth is old. She wants to have a family. Naomi is old. She wants to move it on. Everybody's thinking the same thing, right? All the pieces are in line. But the problem is it has to be the right way. So Boaz goes, and he talks to the first kinsman redeemer, and the first kinsman redeemer says, well, and it's funny. I, I didn't read this part, but it's funny because Boaz says, there's a lot of land that needs sell. And he talks about how there's a little bit of land. He goes, and a woman, there's a little woman. He basically says, if you buy the land, you've got you to gotta care for this woman and her old, you know, mother-in-law. Like he says it like that, kind of like, you have to take care of these two people if you get this land. And so, of course, the guy's like, I don't want it. And he's like, all right, cool. So... Boaz is going to take this on. Um, so, <laughs> so he's stoked. He's super stoked to do this. And in verse 13, um, this is chapter, I think, chapter 3. Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord, the Lord enabled her to conceive. And she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, this old woman who's already lost so much, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, that's not a small thing, your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, go women, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. Isn't that fascinating? It's grandma, but Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, who is the father of David. So that is the story of how Ruth came to be in the family. Aww. I'll tell you, um, I never saw my mother-in-law look at me with such love in her eyes as the first, as the first time she saw me nurse uh, my baby. There's something very special that happens when a mother-in-law realizes the DNA is combined. And she's like, yes. And I'll tell you what, my mom wasn't the most super stoked on my husband, who said not to mention him, but I will mention him. Um, but when he gave me a baby, he can do no wrong. He can do no wrong in that Hispanic mama's eyes. And I'll tell you this, too. She always has a six-pack of Coors for him, always, when we come over. But why would um, Jesus choose Ruth to be in his family lineage? Why Ruth, a foreign woman, what is it about her that he loves so much? Could it be that she doesn't choose to go off in her own land and follow her own former gods? Could it be that she has a relationship with God and takes away everything to go follow in her Naomi, in her mother-in-law's footsteps, something she knows nothing about? Could it be that she sees in Boaz not an old man, but a generous man, a kind man? God is looking at the character. She may not get everything, single thing right. She may not have a lot going for her, but one thing she has going for her that I like is that she listens to a wise woman. She's putting herself below Naomi and listening to her. And some of that advice was a little weird. And she still listened to her. 
The interesting thing is that the story can always change with Jesus. I think um, Psalm 39 now, and I might think my life is set. I might look at all the aspects of my life. Son, check. Daughter, check. House, check. Christmas tree. Dude, guys, I got a puppy. Check. Husband, rocking it. Check. I have an amazing community. All in an instance, guys. Think of um, the tragedies with 9-11 or Katrina or when someone gets diagnosed with some kind of cancer. Think of the things that happen to us all along the way, every day. Those check marks become nothing. Blurs to where we think we got it going. We think we're in a car, a nice car like a Lexus on cruise control. Truth is we're running on fumes. No offense, but when you think you're on cruise control, that's probably when you're running on fumes. And very quickly, you're forced to trust on God again. Um, but there's something that happens with these women. They might have a plan B, like go back. Naomi even had a plan B in the beginning for these women. Her plan was not as good as God's. Naomi's first plan for that beautiful girl, Ruth, was go back and have your own family. Dude, what a bummer if she would have listened to that advice. Naomi wouldn't have had her little, her little grandson. So when we have a plan, a plan, right? It might not be God's plan A. I'll tell you very often when I have a plan, it's not the right plan. And it's good to not put all my eggs in the basket of that plan because I never know really what God has. What God had for them was a kinsman redeemer. Essentially, these women were like walking on a stream on some rock to rock to rock, and God's there one step ahead putting the rocks. And they're like, there just happens to keep being some rocks. <laughs> Sometimes we feel like that, right? We're just going along life. Well, what happens when one day there's like no more rocks? Are you going to just give up? What are we going to do? What Ruth chose to do is she humbled herself at the feet of a man. I'll tell you what. I'm a proud woman. You may know this about me. You may have noticed. Um, I'm probably too proud to do what Ruth did. I'm probably too proud to say, I, in fact, I can just hear myself. I will not lay at the feet of a man asking him to save me, to rescue me, to put all my eggs in that basket of that old guy that I don't even really know. I don't want to do that. That's embarrassing. That's degrading. That's awkward. I would way rather glean every single day than go lay down and see if he'll have me. And yet, that is what God is asking us to do. Because when we lower ourselves and lower our standards of ourselves, God can lift us up. Probably the most pathetic thing I've ever seen is the image of Jesus on the, cro on the cross. It's pathetic. It's sad. It's ugly. It's embarrassing that the God of the world, the God of angels and all creation, humbled himself at the feet of our nasty, dirty feet, our sin, and why? Because the lower he humbled himself, the more he was lifted up. The lowest. That's the picture Jesus is looking for. Low ass low. Just on your face. And when I don't have a plan and when I'm stumbling forward, I feel like I'm fetal position in my bed just going, God, um, this is as low as it gets. And that's when I'm desperate. And that's when I say, you be my kinsman redeemer. I don't know how I'm going to get the wheat for tomorrow. I don't know how I'm going to get the hope, the faith. I may have all those things that I can check, right? The son, daughter, family, car, whatever the crap. 
Take it all away. I don't care. Without Jesus, it's not going to work. It's not going to matter. That's joyless. At the end of the day, seriously, that is not the point of this life. The point of this life is not just to make it to heaven on the other side somehow. The point is to dig in deep with God. Um, I think of that woman, that woman that was struggling, shuffling to chase that dog. And it looked pathetic. And if I was that old woman, I'd probably go home and call animal control and say, I'm done. I'm done. Come get this dog. There's a dog, a strange dog. I know where it is. I got it trapped in my yard. It's tied to my fence. Come get it. I don't know whose dog this is. That's probably what I would do because I'd be fed up with that dog. But because of her love for her daughter, she does it time after time. And if her daughter, you know those weird ideas like in movies where you look in a crystal ball and you can see? If her daughter could see her, how touched would she be to know her mom is in the cold as an old woman trying to get her dog because she loves her? That's how Jesus is with us. You think he doesn't see you. You think he doesn't see you. Pay your taxes. Do the right thing. Return that wallet. Make that meal. Fill up someone else's gas car with gas. Put down the bottle. Whatever you're doing, go to celebrate recovery. Go to church. Whatever you're doing, even that prayer that says, help me in my disbelief, God sees it every single freaking step forward. Um, and so we wait. The whole point of this is a concept of waiting. It's struggling forward and waiting if you're on one rock and there's not another one, we got to just wait because he's going to put it there. Um, today we're in Advent, week three. And Advent is the concept of waiting, isn't it? We're going to light the pink candle. I'm going to tell you why we light the candle. We light this candle because like God's people centuries ago, we know that God has come in Christ and that Christ will come again. That's, we're all on the same rock, guys. We're all hanging out on this rock just waiting to step into the next one, which is Christ coming. But we got to wait till we get our friends on the rock with us. We rejoice in God's work in history and in the future. Amen? Right. The pink color means joy. And now would you pray with me as I pray for hope? Dear God, as we light this candle, we rejoice. We know how the first act of the story ended with the birth of Jesus the Messiah. And we know that he will come again in glory. So even though the story isn't over, we rejoice in your hope. We wait for you rejoicing. Amen.